Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is George Cooper. I'm a medical writer and podcast host. And today I am pleased to be bringing you an overview of obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, otherwise known as HCM. Before we start, a few housekeeping notes. This medical education podcast has been sponsored by Myocardia and Bristol Myers Squibb. Throughout this podcast, we will be discussing the causes of HCM, what symptoms to look out for in patients, and how to increase the rate of diagnosis, plus current treatment options and guidelines. I'm delighted to say that joining me for today's podcast is Dr. Antonis Pantazis, who is a consultant cardiologist based at the Brompton and Harefield Hospital. He is also chairman of the ESC Working Group on Myocardial and Pericardial Diseases. Dr. Pantazis, how are you? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. So the objective of this podcast is to provide an overview for healthcare professionals and uh, perhaps medical students and so on. So let's start from the very basics. What is HCM? HCM is a thick heart, which means a heart with thickened walls, which are not caused by any blockage in any of the valves of the heart is not caused by very high blood pressure, but until recently was pretty much unexplained. Right, I see. And what causes this condition? So nowadays we know a little bit better and we know that in the majority of the cases, the cause of this condition is genetic. So a faulty piece of information in the DNA triggers a, a number of processes within the body and the heart. And the result of all this is thickening of the heart, which we call hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I see. Given that it's a genetic condition, is it possible to perform a genetic test in order to diagnose HCM? It is indeed. And the NHS is, is supporting and encouraging this diagnostic test, the genetic test. But the problem is that this test does not always give us the answer. So we often get the answer, but there is a good number of cases where the results of the genetic test are inconclusive or they don't give us any information at all. So the result of the genetic test needs to be carefully interpreted, interpreted in the context of the clinical condition, and if it makes sense to the geneticists and the clinicians, then it can be used for the further management of the patient and the family. If not, then it's not actionable. I see. And I mean, I know generally um, speaking, uh, heart conditions are, are fairly common in the UK. How, how common or rare is this specific condition, HCM? It is believed that the, the frequency of this condition is one in 500 but it's probably more frequent than that if we take into account that a number of cases, mild cases, are not diagnosed. But for the purpose of this discussion, let's say that this is the frequency is between 1 in 200 and 1 in 500. 
I see. And the way that you describe the condition there is that it's the thickening of the of the heart walls, the muscle. Is it a condition that gets progressively worse throughout time or is it a constant level that you have it the same amount throughout the course of your life if you're unlucky enough to have it? Yes, it's a condition that can get worse over the time. Not just the thickening of the heart can get worse, but a number of complications related to the thick heart in this underlying condition can manifest themselves years after the diagnosis. It's a chronic condition which needs monitoring and then sometimes action to be taken at different stages of, of the clinical course. I understand. So let's talk a little bit about how the symptoms manifest in the patients. So somebody who has undiagnosed HCM walks into your practice, what sort of symptoms are you looking for? Patients usually complain of the usual chest-related symptoms, like chest pain, breathlessness, palpitations, which is the feeling of a running heart. And sometimes they also complain of tiredness, fatigue, dizzy spells, and even loss of consciousness. These are the most common symptoms related to hypertrophic neuropathy, but they're also present in other conditions. For example, breathlessness is present in respiratory conditions. Asthma can manifest itself with breathlessness. And this overlap sometimes is confusing and doesn't help very much with the precise diagnosis, at least at the early stages of the condition. Are there any telltale symptoms of HCM that differentiates it from other conditions such as you mentioned such as asthma or perhaps angina is there anything that is specific to hcm or is it just a case of you need to you need to run the tests nothing is an, entirely specific of hcm one needs to take into account the context which is sometimes the age of the patient or the age of the individual uh, the presence or absence of a relevant family history and other clinical details which may give a number of hints and help with the diagnosis. But what is always very important is the clinical awareness. If people think of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, then it's very likely that they will diagnose it. If colleagues don't think of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, then it may remain undiagnosed for a number of years. I understand. And how typically is HCM diagnosed when you have these patients? Patients usually have an ECG first, as they complain of chest-related symptoms. The ECG is usually abnormal, and then further tests are arranged. These tests usually include imaging of the heart, such as an echocardiogram. They may include a rhythm monitor, which we call Holter monitor. They may include more sophisticated imaging of the heart, which is the cardiac MRI, exercise tests. There are a number of tests that can be done, but usually, they start from an abnormal ECG. And are there any challenges in diagnosing HCM that mean that sometimes it can perhaps get missed? The main challenge is if people don't think about it. Yeah. Then, of course, they will not start the whole process. Then there are some situations where uh, other morbidities, other health conditions may be present and may be misleading. If for, if, for example, a patient has high blood pressure and has slight thickening of the heart, maybe the thickening of the heart is put down to the high blood pressure and the diagnosis of hypertrophic neuropathy is missed. 
How many patients do you feel could be currently living in the UK with, with undiagnosed HCM, given that it can sometimes slip under the radar if there are comorbidities in the patient, for example? I think we are doing okay in the UK because we have a, a good healthcare system and patients, maybe with some delays, I'm not saying it's perfect, but maybe with some delays, patients get their tests at some point. And also what we do in the UK is what we call family screening. So if there is an individual diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, then the family of this individual is being screened in a preventative fashion. And therefore, early cases and early diagnosis can be reached. And also, uh, the healthcare system encourages the clinicians to, to get to the bottom of the clinical condition and the symptoms. And is very often that if the process starts somewhere, then it will be it will come to to uh, to the fruition to a fruition. Perfect. And I mean, it makes total sense with it being a genetic condition to do the family screening. Is is there currently a, a standard procedure to how those um, that that family screening is is taken out? Do, do you call family members in to have their ECGs and so on? We advise them that they need to be screened, and this happens in liaison with their general practitioners because they need to generate the referral. But as soon as the referral is generated, then the relatives can be screened in the DGHs and and tertiary centers, wherever it's convenient for them and close to where they live. Let's move on now to some of the, uh, the, the differences in the condition. There are different types of HCM. There's non-obstructive and obstructive. Can you just explain to us briefly what, what the difference is between the two? Let's start from the non-obstructive HCM, which is simpler to describe. In non-obstructive HCM, one of the walls of the heart is thickened, but this does not block the flow of the blood when the heart is pumping the blood out. The heart may be stiff, but there's no blockage of the flow. In obstructive HCM, the thick wall of the heart, together with one of the valves, they're coming together and they block the exit of the heart. They block the outflow track of the left ventricle, as we call it, during systole, which, which is when the heart is pumping the blood out. This is a very dynamic situation, so it doesn't, it, it doesn't have to be present all the time. It is unfortunately present when the heart is putting more effort to pump more blood out. So typically during exercise. So when the heart needs to do more, then the heart is blocked by its own elements. What is the typical age in which patients generally are, are diagnosed with HCM? Um, it, is it something that, that you notice maybe in childhood if, a, um, if, a, if a young patient is perhaps coming out of breath when playing sports? When, when, when are the sorts of moments that you think, okay, this could be HCM? They can be diagnosed at any age, but for a number of reasons, it's more frequent to be diagnosed at young age. One of the reasons is because at young age, there aren't many other conditions, lung or heart conditions, that could explain the patient's symptoms. So if a young person is suddenly breathless or experience, they experience chest pain, they will be fully investigated because this is unusual where if a 70-year-old person experiences some breathlessness or some chest pain, may not be fully investigated because it may be explained by the patient's age, the patient may be unfit or may have other 
conditions, uh, um, maybe overweight and so on. But younger people are usually more thoroughly investigated because the, the symptoms there are unexpected and therefore the, the doctors want to get to the bottom of them. So patients who are diagnosed later in life, is it that they have always had it and it's been just gradually progressively getting worse? Or is there sometimes situations which can cause it to rapidly in- increase in severity sort of exponentially, if that makes sense? Does it, does it come on, you know how you can have um, late onset asthma that you only develop later on in life? Is it a similar sort of thing with HCM? Yes, there is also late onset HCM. So some patients present with the condition, develop the condition at a young age, even in childhood. Other patients develop the condition in their teenage years or young adulthood. But there are also patients who develop the condition in their 50s, 60s, and so on. So, yeah, it can present at any age. And sometimes when the symptoms are not very um, limiting, uh, the, the patients may have the condition for a number of years without... Uh, seeking any medical uh, attention without being diagnosed. I mean, it just greater emphasizes the need for uh, doctors such as yourself to be aware of this condition because it can manifest itself at any age, of course, as you said. Precisely. Um, I wanted to ask you um, quickly, please, about the current approved treatments that are available to patients with HCM. And can HCM be treated with medication, for example? We don't really have medication which is specifically developed for HCM. What we try to do with medication is treat the symptoms, if the symptoms are present, and reduce the risk. We are not very good reducing the risk, and by risk I mean risk of complications such as sudden death, which is a complication sometimes encountered in HCM. We're not very good reducing the risk with medication. Therefore, we use the medication mainly for the symptoms. And because the heart is very dynamic in HCM and sometimes obstructs itself, the medication that we typically use in this situation is the so-called negative inotropic agents. So medication that relaxes the heart, prevents the heart from pumping in a very, very strongly. And by doing that, We believe and we have seen, the experience has shown that some of these symptoms can be corrected, can be uh, alleviated. But this has a downside that this medication, they don't just suppress the heart, but sometimes they suppress the whole body. So the, the price the patients pay is that they may feel tired because of the medication that has alleviated possibly the chest pain but then they may feel tired through the same medication, which is now a side effect of the medication. I understand. So by relaxing the heart and making it beat less aggressively, do you stifle the hypertrophy of the, of the heart and the, um, the growing of that muscle, so effectively slow down the progression of the condition? No, unfortunately, we cannot do that. We cannot uh, affect the, the thickness of the heart at all. We cannot stop the progression of the um, thickening with the medication that is currently available. We can only make the heart beat less vigorously. And by doing that, we prevent the heart from having this obstruction in obstructive HCM. But the heart anatomy remains the same. The thickness remains the same. The valves remain the same. This is why I said that this is not disease-specific medication. It doesn't treat the cause or the mechanisms of the disease. It treats only the symptoms and 
possibly through the mechanism of the symptoms. I see. So I guess the other option would be surgery. Are the patients have to have, for example, um, myectomy? Yes, there are a number, not many, but a couple of interventions available. And the surgery, which is called myectomy, is considered the gold standard, meaning the, the best option we have, provided that there is no contraindication in individual patients. By performing the surgery, we essentially correct the anatomy and certain anatomical features inside the heart, which we think play a significant role in the function of the heart. So not just the anatomy, but we correct also the function and we prevent obstruction inside the heart. I understand. And when performing um, the myectomy, is there a particular side of the heart, which is the side that gets the hypertrophy? This, I know, I understand that the septum also is involved in terms of the thickness. Is there a particular um, ventricle or chamber of the heart that is often needing to have the more surgical intervention? Or can you, is there any way of knowing before you, you know, go into the patient, essentially? We have to know before we go into the patient. So we have to study the heart very carefully and understand the mechanism of the obstruction and what else might be wrong inside the heart. This is a complex disease and it does not, does not affect only the septum, although the septum is usually more hypertrophied than the rest of the heart, but affects the, 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 one of the valves of the heart, which is called mitral valve, affects the mechanism underneath the mitral valve, which keeps the mitral valve in the right place and supports its function when the valve is opening and closing. Therefore, the information about all these elements needs to be acquired and interpreted correctly before the operation. Then during the operation, very often, more than one actions need to be taken. So typically, we will remove thick muscle, the thick muscle of the septum and try to reduce the thickness of the septum. But not infrequently, we may need to do some work on the mitral valve or underneath the mitral valve to make sure that all this complex mechanism is now going back to some normality. I understand. So in essence, you're essentially sculpting the heart from within the inside to allow more room and allow the, the proper mechanistic action. Um, is it a, a, a terribly complicated surgery? It, it sounds... Um, it doesn't sound like your kind of standard procedure. How are the survival rates after um, a procedure like this generally? It's very complicated and demanding because of these challenges that it's a complex anatomy and function of the heart. And also the surgeon needs to go through essentially a very small hole. We don't open the whole heart, but they need to go through a small hole of the heart, which is called the aortic valve and perform the surgery like this. So they have to reconstruct in their mind the whole anatomy and function of the heart in order to address the problem. However, in experienced centers, the, the mortality is less than 1%. So it's a safe operation, provided that it is offered to the right people. Given the technical challenges, the complexity of this cardiac condition, and the fact that training for this operation is not very easy from one surgeon to, to their colleagues, the operation is offered only in a small number of centers. And although, as I said, the mortality is low, the problem is that the experience is limited worldwide, and therefore patients don't always have access to a center that performs this operation 
safely and with good success. With this in mind, what percentage of patients with HCM will end up having a myectomy? Yeah, at the end, it's a small percentage for a number of reasons. So I think we have an unmet need here because quite a few patients have obstruction, but because of the very invasive nature of the optimal treatment, which is at the moment the myectomy, and because of the unavailability of good and experienced myectomy centers, at the end, um, a small number of patients will uh, will have the myectomy and have their problem sorted. So, as I said, it's, it's something that internationally and in the UK, we haven't been able to address. Are there any treatment guidelines um, currently in place that can help um, consultants to make these decisions and identify patients that are in desperate need of a myectomy? There are treatment guidelines published by the European Society of Cardiology and also there is also guidance from the American colleagues, but they can't advise on individual patients, unfortunately, because every patient with hypertrophic neuropathy and more particularly obstructive hypertrophic neuropathy, they have a slightly different heart. So not one size fits all. It's, it's a situation where each individual patient and each individual heart needs to be studied very carefully. And therefore, the advice cannot come from published documents and guidelines. For this reason, the best practice is to make this decision in multidisciplinary team meetings where a number of different colleagues with different expertise, background, and maybe practices meet together, discuss the cases, and make a joint decision. And for the patients that do end up having a myectomy, how does that impact their, their lives? Because you mentioned the symptoms, sometimes people will be feeling breathless and, and extreme fatigue, which can obviously hinder you know, your day to day. What is the change that you notice in patients after they've had the procedure? Is it, does it have a profound effect? Yes, they improve very much and, and they usually give a great feedback very soon after the operation, even in the early post-operative days when one would have expected that they would be limited by a lot of pains and, and issues related to the operation itself. They often say that all the previous symptoms have now gone away. And sometimes, it's, this is very interesting actually and, and shows probably demonstrates another unmet need. Some of the patients say that they, they now realize after the operation how limited they were before. Wow. Because previously, before the procedure, they had adapted to their limitations and to their condition. And to some extent, they, they were not able to register and, and report the limitations and the symptoms they had. And after the myectomy, after the operation, they said, ah, now I realize how, how limited I was actually previously. And this is very important because when we follow these patients, even outside the context of the myectomy, we need to take into account that some of their symptoms may be masked by the chronic adaptation to the, to the condition. That's incredible. I mean, just the feeling, I, I suppose if you've never known any different, you would just think I'm, maybe they pass it off as just being unfit or, you know, many other things. So it must, you know, drastically change, change these patients' life for the better. Generally, how long is the recovery period after, uh, after the procedure? Oh, if there are no other comorbidities and quite a few of these patients are young because this condition 
can be diagnosed at a young age, the, the recovery is very quick. So it probably spend five days in the hospital and then within a month they're fully functional, sometimes even earlier than that. Are you able to share a, a recent case study of a patient from the moment that they walked into your practice to recovery and uh, to treatment and and recovery just the general kind of the lifespan of a, uh, of a of a patient with hcm i know it's difficult because you said as i said earlier every patient is is slightly different so it's very hard to generalize but just for the benefit of um other healthcare professionals that are listening yeah sure i mean i, I can tell you about a, a patient that we have recently operated on uh, she, she's a, a lady who was diagnosed with hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy uh, through her sister because the sister had the condition first. And when she was diagnosed, she, she didn't have any, uh, any major and limiting symptoms. But over the years, she was becoming more and more breathless and she was experiencing chest pain on minimal exertion. She was a very active lady before the diagnosis, but she ended up having um, a very limited life. She changed all her lifestyle. She was unable to do uh, basic things with her friends, with her family, unable to look after her garden. And she was very keen to do uh, the, the gardening herself because it was her own creation. And, and, and she, she invested a lot of time and effort in that. Uh, but she ended up being unable to do any of these. And then at some point, she, she started having symptoms of uh, severe dizziness and near fainting on everyday activities. Going up the stairs at home, she was becoming very dizzy and, and breathless. Uh, this condition often gives symptoms after, uh, after food, after meals. And every time she was having a, a meal, not a big one, but just a meal, she was unable to go up the stairs or walk 10 yards. So her life was, was a nightmare. And although she was initially quite um, reluctant to have an operation, over the years and experiencing all these symptoms and being unable to, to, to have any, any improvement through the medical treatment, she actually decided to have an operation and she was extremely keen to have that. So her mindset changed completely. And what uh, drove this, this change of the mindset was uh, the, the very significant limitations. And I think that was very helpful for us to know this story because we realized that she had indeed reached the point that she needed an intervention. She had the operation and within five days, she was walking up and down uh, in, on the ward of, uh, of the hospital. She, she was telling us that her previous symptoms had gone, although she, she, she already she had a, a, a new, a fresh scar, which I'm sure was painful, but she was so happy that she could go up the stairs again and she was not limited by dizziness and breathlessness. That's fantastic. And uh, you mentioned there in the case study that she felt particularly fatigued after a meal. Why, why do you think that is? Or why is that caused? The, this is because of the uh, response of the body to, to the meal and, and the effort that the body does to digest the, the meal. It redistributes the blood flow away from the heart. The heart becomes slightly smaller inside and the obstruction becomes worse in simple terms. So it's typical that these patients have postprandial symptoms, symptoms after uh, meals, as well as they, they experience symptoms 
when they are dehydrated in, in hot environments, um, sometimes after they drink alcohol. And of course, the combination of all this can be quite, uh, can affect their symptoms quite dramatically. Of course. And when you diagnose patients with HCM, do you recommend any lifestyle changes at all to the patients? For example, the things that you would normally expect with uh, with heart conditions, you know, quit smoking, alcohol. Yeah. What, what are the strong recommendations that you pass on to patients? Yeah, that's a very good question, really, because obviously patients need to live with this condition all their lives. So they, they need to know how to live their lives. And the, of course, we recommend the, the, the general um healthy lifestyle recommendations. We give them the, the general lifestyle recommendations uh, to give up smoking if they smoke, to, to lose some weight if they are overweight and so on. Uh, but more specifically for this condition, the recommendations are to avoid the things that I mentioned a few minutes earlier, to avoid meals and particularly, no, not to avoid meals altogether, but to avoid big meals and then exercise after the meals, to avoid the dehydration, uh, to avoid exercising in hot environment. But it is very important to, uh, to highlight that exercise is not altogether contraindicated. So patients are not discouraged from doing exercise. And this is against a previous belief, which was not evi evidence-based, that any type of exercise would harm the patients with hypertrophic neuropathy. It's, it's the opposite, that patients need to remain fit, need to maintain a, a good health of the cardiovascular system. So regular exercise, but of course not non-strenuous exercise, is recommended. We, we would discourage a patient from doing extremely strenuous sports, but the regular exercise is, is good health, mm. even in these patients, yeah. Understand. Is there any uh, form of exercise that is uh, recommended? I know you said not strenuous, but generally is that, you know, whether it be swimming or jogging or cycling, is there any, any, or is all exercise good as long as it's not too strenuous, as you said? Yeah, all aerobic exercise is good. But interestingly, sometimes these patients tolerate swimming better than upright exercise. And this is probably related to uh, the same thing that I said earlier, that in upright position, the blood return to, to the heart is a little bit less because of the gravity, and therefore the heart is slightly smaller, where when swimming, the, 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 the body is horizontal and the blood flow um, to, the, to the heart is, is unaffected, and therefore there is less obstruction. So patients sometimes enjoy swimming more than running. I see. Oh, this this has all been incredibly uh, enlightening, and thank you very much for your uh, time, Doctor um, Panzazis. I was wondering before we say goodbye, what would be your parting kind of words of wisdom to healthcare professionals listening to this in relation to the identification of patients and treatment of patients? If you were to just pass on some, you know, conclusions and summarize what we've learned throughout this podcast, I think it's very important that colleagues think of hypertrophic neuropathy at all ages, obviously, uh, but importantly, at, at young ages. Um, and if, if they think of the condition, I'm sure they will be able to diagnose it this or the other way. And in terms of the treatment and management, I think it's extremely important that we listen to our patients. We understand carefully what their symptoms are, what their limitations are, what their concerns are, because they may have concerns outside the symptoms. Uh, there may be young people who want to start a family, to want to engage in sports, want to have social life, professional life, and this and that, which may be affected by the diagnosis. So we need to 
approach our patients in a holistic way and and tailor our, the management around their needs, even if we don't have disease-specific drugs at this stage, if we actually focus on our patients' symptoms and lives, uh, that will help a lot with the management. Dr. Antonis Panzazis, thank you very much for your time. It has been a great pleasure talking to you. And that concludes today's discussion. Thank you to Dr. Antonis Pantazis for joining us today and sharing his insights around obstructive HCM with our audience. If you've enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We release a new episode every Friday, as well as plenty of bonus episodes like this one. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.